0: Please be seated. And let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to read and preach verses 14 through 16 this evening. We're in the middle of this list of exhortations about how to live out the gospel in the Christian life, in the context of the local church that we're a part of, and also towards the unbelievers around us. And we come this evening to a series of commands about how to respond to persecution from unbelievers and how we should relate to both the joys and the sorrows of our fellow believers in the body of Christ. Also, how to live in harmony with those fellow believers. And we'll see that God calls us to respond and relate to those around us with grace and compassion and humility. With grace towards our persecutors and with compassion and humility towards our fellow believers. Now, this doesn't come naturally to us in our sin. When people persecute us, our reflex is to react negatively to them. We don't always rejoice with those who rejoice. We sometimes envy those who rejoice. We don't always weep with those who weep because, well, their problems are not our problems. We don't always relate to our fellow believers with humility because we are... Wiser in our own sight than we are in the sight of God. And so these things don't come naturally to us. But God is gracious to call us out of what we are naturally in our sin and into what we are spiritually now in Christ and into what we can be by His grace and what He commands us to be by His grace. He calls us to respond and relate to those around us with grace and compassion and humility. And we'll take a closer look at what that means and what that looks like as we look closely at these verses together this evening. But let's pray first, and then we'll give our attention to God's word. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge before you together now our need for this part of your word. Because we are not always gracious or compassionate or humble toward those around us. But that is what we're called to be as your children. That's how you call us to live out the gospel toward unbelievers and toward our fellow believers. So would you help us now to receive your word with a teachable spirit. And with an eagerness to learn and grow by the grace of Christ who was and is gracious and compassionate and humble toward us in the gospel. And we pray together in his name, amen. Romans chapter 12, reading verses 14 through 16. This is the word of God. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. As you can see in your sermon notes, we're going to look first at how verse 14 answers the question, how should we respond to persecution from unbelievers then how verse 15 answers the question, how should we relate to the joys and sorrows of fellow believers? Finally, how verse 16 answers the question, how do we live in harmony with fellow believers? And kids, don't forget to listen for those key words for kids at the top, all of which have to do with different illustrations that will be used. And Afterwards, you can perhaps try to remember the points those illustrations were illustrating. But let's look more closely at verse 14 and what it says about how we should respond to persecution from unbelievers. Reading verse 14 again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. How should we respond to persecution from unbelievers? We should respond with grace. We should bless them and not curse them. We're called to bless those who persecute us so when a classmate or a professor makes fun of you in front of the whole class for being a christian or when a coworker consistently makes life difficult for you in your job because they found out what you believe about sexuality what the bible teaches about sexuality Or when you work up the courage to share the gospel with a neighbor, but they react negatively and then begin to treat you poorly every time you see them. Or when you say something about the Bible at an extended family gathering and your unbelieving family members attack you verbally. When unbelievers persecute you, God says to respond with grace. God says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Don't fight fire with fire. Fight fire with favor. Fight fire with a fire extinguisher of kindness towards them. Don't pour gasoline on their fire. Pour kindness on their fire. Be kind to them. Be gracious to them. Be gentle with them. Bless them, don't curse them. Do good to them. Don't return evil for evil. That's how God calls us to respond to persecution from unbelievers. Not just if they persecute you, don't persecute them back. But even more so, we're called to positively bless them. So it's not enough just to hold our tongues we're supposed to use our tongues to bless them to speak kind and gracious words to them as our savior taught us in Matthew 5:44 love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you or Luke 6:27 and 28 love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who abuse you Whereas the apostle Peter said in 1 Peter three nine, do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary bless. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians four, twelve and thirteen, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. This is what we're called to do as Christians. This is what God calls us to do in response to persecution. Now, this is really hard, isn't it? As I said at the beginning, this doesn't come naturally to us in our sin. So, kids, when you go to the doctor and he gives you a tap on the knee with that little rubber hammer, what happens to your leg? It kicks up a little bit, right? That's called your reflex. Well, our reflex, when someone is mean to us, is to be mean to them back. That's a sinful reflex that we all have. When we're hit, our instinct is to hit back. When pushed, it's to push back. When we're persecuted, our reflex is to respond negatively our reflex is actually the opposite of what God calls us to do. But what God calls us to do obviously is so much better than what we instinctively do. What God calls us to is to bless those who persecute us. How can we do this? How can we find strength to do this, we might wonder. Well, first of all, we remember that this is actually what God has done to us. We have persecuted him, as it were, by our sin. We've rebelled against him, even though he's our creator and king. But what has he done to us in response? He has blessed us with his grace in Christ. And I think when we remember that, when we remember that how god calls us to respond to our persecutors is actually how he has responded to us that is with grace then that'll help us respond in the same way then we who've been blessed can bless we can give what we've been given we can give grace so we can be helped by remembering that this is what God has done to us. Secondly, I think we can be helped by remembering that this is what Jesus did to his persecutors during his earthly life. This is what Jesus did to those who persecuted him. He prayed for them while he was hanging on the cross that they nailed him to. 1 Peter 2, says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And we're called to imitate him. We're called to follow in his footsteps. Verses 20 and 21 of First Peter 2 say, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When we remember that this is what Jesus did to his persecutors, then following in his steps, this is what we can do to our persecutors, to give them grace, to respond to them with grace. Thirdly, though, in addition to remembering that this is what God has done to us and that this is what Jesus did to his persecutors, we need to remember, of course, that we can only do this in the strength of Christ We can only do what God calls us to do in the strength of his son. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul said in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Apart from Christ, we can't do what God calls us to do here. But through Christ, we can in our own strength, we can't bless those who persecute us. We don't have it in us. Left to our own reflexes, we'll respond negatively every time. That's how the leg will kick each time. But Christ has given us new reflexes, He's given us a new heart. Christ has promised to be with us always, even in the midst of persecution. And He is our source of strength, He's our power source as we seek to bless those who persecute us. We follow in his steps, but he also walks alongside us, helping us, encouraging us, motivating us, empowering us, so that we can give grace to those who persecute us. So how should we respond to persecution from unbelievers? We should respond with grace. We should bless them and not curse them how can we respond to them in that way how is that possible for us we can do it by remembering that this is what God has done to us and that this is what Christ did to his persecutors and we can do this in the strength of Christ if we look to him in faith and ask him for his grace and help we can bless those who persecute us we can respond to them with the grace that we ourselves have been given Well, that's how we should respond to the unbelievers around us, to the unbelievers who persecute us. How should we respond to our fellow believers, particularly in the midst of their joys and their sorrows? We were just told how to respond to the opposing team. Now we're told how to relate to our teammates. That's what Paul focuses on in verse 15. Let's look at that now under our second main point. How should we relate to the joys and sorrows of our fellow believers? Paul says in verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. How should we relate to the joys and sorrows of our fellow believers? With compassion. With compassion. We should rejoice with them in their joys and weep with them in their sorrows. What does this mean? What does this look like? It means that we share in each other's joys and sorrows because we're one body, because we're family. You're happy for the couple who just had a baby and you congratulate them and bring them a meal. You mourn with the elderly member whose spouse has just died and you sit with them and listen to them share about their loved one and you comfort them by reading a bit of a psalm and praying for them. This is about sharing in each other's joys, and in each other's sorrows. Like 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So the empty nester couple rejoices with the teenager at the news of his college acceptance. The young child makes a card for a widow to comfort her in her grief. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says. And we all need people who will cheer with us and who will cry with us. And we all need to be those people for each other. We're not supposed to be like islands in the middle of the ocean, separate and isolated from one another. We're supposed to be like those emperor penguins all huddled together in the Antarctic, helping each other survive the harsh winter of this fallen world we live in, and celebrating together when spring returns and the warm sun comes out again. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice as if the joyful thing happened to us, and we're to weep with those who weep as if the sorrowful thing happened to us. As we sing together in the hymn, blessed be the tie that binds, we share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. James 5.13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And this is about joining each other in the prayers. And in the songs and in order to do that you have to notice people you have to get to know people you have to spend time with people you have to have meaningful relationships with people don't you you have to care for people you have to love people as Christ has loved us And I think in one sense, it's easier to rejoice with those who rejoice than to weep with those who weep because it's more pleasant to rejoice than to weep. But in another sense, I think it's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than to weep with those who weep because we're so prone to envy and jealousy. It's a bit easier to have compassion on a teammate who gets injured during a game than it is to truly rejoice when someone other than you on the team scores the winning basket. Our envy and our jealousy get in the way of our rejoicing with those who rejoice. And our selfishness and callousness get in the way of our weeping with those who weep. And so what do we do if we don't feel joy? What if we don't feel sorrow? What if our hearts are cold and lacking compassion? Well, then we can warm our hearts by the fire of our Savior's compassion. He rejoiced with those who rejoiced at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, and he wept with those who wept at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. He was full of compassion, and he remains full of compassion. His heart is warm with compassion towards his people and we can warm our cold hearts by the fire of his compassion. By his grace, we can relate to the joys and sorrows of our fellow believers with compassion. We can rejoice with them in their joys and weep with them in their sorrows. There's a great quote by B.B. Warfield that I've included on a bulletin insert and it's a long one I recognize it's a bit unusual to read such a long quote in a sermon, but I think it's worth it uh, if you'll pull it out. I came across this quote in a lecture by David Pallison long ago. And Warfield's talking about the concept of self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice, which I think is at the core of being able to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Warfield writes, It is not to mere self denial that Christ calls us, but specifically to self sacrifice. Not to unselfing ourselves, but to unselfishing ourselves. Self denial, for its own sake, is in its very nature ascetic, monkish. It concentrates our whole attention on self, self knowledge, self control and can therefore eventuate in nothing other than the very deification of selfishness. Self-denial, then, drives to the cloister, narrows and contracts the soul, murders within us all innocent desires, dries up all the springs of sympathy, and nurses and coddles our self-importance until we grow so great in our own esteem as to be Careless of the trials and sufferings, the joys and aspirations, the strivings and failures and successes of our fellow men. Self denial, thus understood, will make us cold, hard, unsympathetic, proud, arrogant, self esteeming, fanatical, overbearing, cruel. It may make monks and Stoics, it cannot make Christians. Christ was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world. And self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there will we be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there will we be to help. Wherever men fail, there will we be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means many sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means richness of development. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. It means that all the experiences of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. Our self-sacrifice, like the self-sacrifice of Christ, empowered by the self-sacrifice of Christ, will enable us to truly rejoice with those who rejoice and to truly weep with those who weep. To relate to the joys and sorrows of our fellow believers with compassion. God calls us to respond to those who persecute us with grace. To relate to the joys and sorrows of our fellow believers with compassion. And thirdly, to live in harmony with our fellow believers with humility. How do we live in harmony with our fellow believers? Our third main point. We live in harmony with our fellow believers by living in humility with our fellow believers. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise, in your own sight. We're told to live in harmony with one another. Like the parts of a hymn, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass, are all different from one another and yet are all in harmony with each other when we sing them. So we, though we're different from each other, are to live in harmony with each other. He's not saying live in unison, where all the different parts just become one part. He's saying live in unity, unity in the midst of diversity, live in harmony with one another. We're not supposed to live at odds with each other in the family of God. It's not supposed to be constant tension in our relationships with one another. We're not supposed to be cold towards each other, distant from each other. We're not supposed to be content with unresolved conflict with one another. Rather, we're supposed to live in harmony with each other, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, Philippians 1:27. Paul says later in this letter, in chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11, he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The apostle Peter says in First Peter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Live in harmony with one another. You know, if there's a fellow church member you have a hard time getting along with, I think a good question to ask yourself is simply, what can I do to live in harmony with so and so. Pray for God's blessing on the relationship and then take a step towards greater harmony. There's a number of things that get in the way of us living in harmony with one another, isn't there? And perhaps the greatest thing is our pride. That's probably why the next words out of Paul's mouth, so to speak, in verse 16 are Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Three things that will help us live in harmony with one another don't be haughty, associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own sight. Don't be haughty, he says first. Don't be all high and mighty. Don't be arrogant and self-important. Don't have a big head like a bobblehead doll. Don't be snobbish. Don't be proud. Don't be full of yourself. Don't always be thinking about you, always be talking about you, pausing occasionally only to listen for what others think about you. Chapter 12, verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Don't be haughty. Be humble. Number two, associate with the lowly, which probably means those of a lower status of some kind in the church. Of course, we're all equal in very important ways, equally made in the image of God, equal in our standing before the foot of the cross. But there are differences in terms of our station in life and our socioeconomic status. Again, not that that changes our value, but there is such a thing as the lowly, as it says here in this verse. And we're all called to associate with the lowly, whether we are lowly or not in terms of our station. We're not to look down on those who are lowly. We're to link arms with those who are lowly. We're not to avoid those who are lowly. We're to associate with those who are lowly. We're to live in harmony with those who are lowly. We're to love those who are lowly. There should be nobody in the church you are unwilling to go up to and say hello to and talk to Because of their age, because of their ethnicity, because of what they look like, because of their clothes, whatever. If you're not willing to stoop to their level, then you're haughty and you need to repent. If you're humble, you're going to be willing to associate with them. You're going to be willing to associate with the materially lowly because you know yourself to be Spiritually lowly. If you're lowly in spirit, you're gonna be happy to associate with the lowly in status. John Murray wrote, there is to be no aristocracy in the church, no cliques of the wealthy as over against the poor, no pedestals of unapproachable dignity for those on the higher social and economic strata or for those who are in office in the church how contradictory to all such pretension is the character of the church's head. I am meek and lowly in heart. Matthew 11, 29. Jesus was the epitome of humility. As it says in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God... He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Our Savior associated with the lowly and the servants should not be above their master third and finally we're told in the last sentence of verse 16 there never be wise in your own sight Proverbs 3 7 be not wise in your own eyes fear the Lord and turn away from evil Proverbs 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Ask yourself Am I correctable? Am I teachable? Am I humble? Am I approachable? Or do I think my own wisdom is so high that nobody else can reach it? Nobody else can reach up that high. Are you like an impervious rock that doesn't allow any water to pass through it? Or are you like a porous rock that allows water to pass through it freely? Are you impervious to correction? Or are you open? correction don't be wise in your own sight actually says never be wise in your own sight rather associate with the lowly live in harmony with one another live in humility with one another listen to the end of James chapter 3 which I think in some ways kind of brings this all together There will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. God calls us to respond and relate to those around us with grace and compassion and humility, with grace toward our persecutors, with compassion toward our fellow believers and their joys and their sorrows, and with humility toward our fellow believers as we seek to live in harmony with them. And the thought I want to leave you with As we try to take these things into the rest of the week. It's a thought that we began with earlier tonight. That is that God himself has been gracious and compassionate and humble toward us in the gospel. And it is because of the gospel and by the grace of the gospel. That we can be gracious and compassionate and humble toward others. We can give the grace we've been given. We can show the compassion we've been shown. And we can be humble. Like our humble Savior. Who humbled himself. So that we the lowly. Could be exalted to eternal life. It is by his grace and for his glory that we respond and relate to those around us with the very same grace and compassion and humility he has shown to us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the abundant grace and compassion and humility that you have shown to us in the gospel. And we pray that you would empower us to show that same grace and compassion and humility toward others, to bless those who persecute us, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, and to live in harmony with one another by living in humility with one another. We want to grow in each of these things in the coming week, so would you help us Work in us, sanctify us, equip us and empower us to give what we've been given. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's take just a minute to think and pray.